politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for our lives, our liberty, and our property, and most importantly, our right and ability to survive. If that is what you care about, well, this is your one-stop shop for all that matters on those fronts. Daniel Horowitz, your host back here today. See our podcast is the destination um, it is Monday the 26th for you, but I'm pre-recording because I will be off today and tomorrow as well. We'll be back full service Wednesday. And while the week starts off on Monday, it ends midnight. Friday night is the end of this fiscal year. And that's the end of the budget bill. And there is no inkling from any Republican to engage in a budget fight over funding evil. Imagine if we would have had a Republican Party that would have spent the past year and a half gathering the evidence, articulating the evidence of the genocide from all facets of COVID, including the shots. The people would be clamoring for action. We're already at the point where if you just look at mainstream studies and even even mainstream media sources, you will find, yeah, this thing causes cancer, irregular heartbeats. Um, Yeah, there's a bunch of excess death. What? And this is going and going and going. Do you know we funded $7 billion in U.S. taxpayer dollars to purchase just the international vaccines to be given to non-Americans? Forget about Americans, how many billions we've spent. Another $6 billion or so on Paxlovid. And now, the Pfizer CEO, Albert Borla, announced that he has COVID for the second time in six weeks after having supposedly gotten four of them and Paxlovid. And he got the rebound too. And he got it again. This thing literally does everything we could have never imagined. It harms every aspect of your body and it makes you more vulnerable for COVID. It erases natural immunity and makes it that you're never immune And yet to this day, Republicans want to walk away from it. We have the mandates, the genocide, the emergency powers that they are using, continuing to use, will use for other things. We have so many millions of people who need treatment, who need help. We have people dying young. We have our hospitals that are nothing but killing camps. And you read the Republican Party's commitment to America. That's kind of their version of the contract with America. Put out by Kevin McCarthy, who by all accounts is going to be a speaker no matter how bad he is. And there is not a single mention of COVID, COVID fascism, vaccines, emergency powers, shutdowns even, masks, nothing. Medical freedom. It's as if the past two and a half years never occurred. If you read through their document, and I'm going to have a big column coming out. It will be published today for Monday. Although this is a pre-record, but it it should be out on Monday. A more in-depth analysis of the Republican Party's document, which has literally nothing in it. But it's akin to someone finding a robber come out of his house with a blood-dripping knife. He just killed the wife, the kids. And when it finally comes time for that individual to react, he starts screaming about the fact that as the robber is escaping the house, he is stepping on the garden and the flowers. If you follow that analogy, that's what the GOP document is. It's not that anything in it is offensive because, you know, they're trying to pander to the base, so they use a couple of buzzwords, but they don't focus on any of the issues that matter. And COVID doesn't exist. Today, we're going to talk about how the ramifications of medical tyranny, of the system we have, which is government-run healthcare. It's just more nuanced than Europe, but it's just as bad as Europe. We are still suffering from it, not just from COVID, 
but other ailments that you cannot get treatment in a hospital for most ailments. What are we going to do with that? I was thinking more and more, more and more I'm finding people I know who are dying, some are dying young, some it's not clear what they're dying from. But no matter what, here is what's clear. Aside from all the people who died from COVID that should have never died, and people who died from the shots who never should have died, there's a whole nother cohort of people that clearly did die naturally from whatever was ailing them, but they spent the last three years of their life in a comatose stage, meaning A, it likely exacerbated their so-called natural death, and B, their quality of life was terrible. I'm finding that so many people, not just in their 90s, but even 60s and 70s, where, yeah, maybe they died at 75, not, not terribly young, maybe you know a little bit under life expectancy, but they basically just vegetated. They stayed home for years, They were told that they were very vulnerable because they were sick. They got a bunch of shots. And let's just say the shots didn't hasten their death. A lot of the people did, but let's just say it didn't. But the fact that to this day, these people are terrified. They know the shots don't work. Now, Omicron really is a nothing. But they've been terrified. And they haven't been told of the simple, simple things you can do, starting with the nasal and oral rinse, which is like 90% of of everything. It costs you nothing. We could have prevented all these deaths. And yet you look around from Republicans. There's a Wall Street Journal article, and they're talking about, thankfully, only about, I think, 1.5% of the population has gotten the newest booster, So thankfully, people are waking up. But even when the shots have been repudiated a hundred times over, where are Republicans? I'm going to read to you a quote here from the journal article. Health authorities had looked to the new round of doses as an opportunity to improve boosting rates, saying people who are open to vaccinations but hadn't gotten a booster may want want a retold shot. Quote, If we do a good job with getting information out, it might help people make a more realistic risk assessment, said Jennifer DeLaha. Now, who's Jennifer DeLaha? The director of the Arkansas Department of Health. Maybe call it Omicron Plus, she said. So even though it's been proven, you have the CEO of Pfizer got it freaking twice. Okay? It's been proven all over the place. Theirs is up the wazoo. The heart ailments, the blood clots is everywhere. You have the director of the Arkansas Department of Health, not California, New York, Massachusetts, Maryland. This is the red state of Arkansas. They are just as retarded as Australia. In fact, Australia, even Australia and New Zealand, they're kind of moving on. The Republican Party Even now that it's become easy, it's very easy to make the case against the shots. They still will not touch it. They won't talk about it. They won't mention it. And they are literally just as supportive of it as the Democrats are. And and, and just how mainstream has it gone to talk about the damage now? What's What's the side effect that you think they would cover up the most? Heart, blood clotting, neurological, reproductive. I'd say it's cancer. That's the one I think people aren't emotionally prepared for. I don't think people realize the tsunami of cancers that are coming from this shot. I I can't even, I don't know. I mean, this time of year in, in my religion is when we spend time praying for literally a new, healthy, successful Happy New Year, in terms of the Lunar New Year, the Jewish New Year. And this is something only God could save us from. This is from the Atlantic. Did a famous doctor's COVID shot make his cancer worse? 
Okay, this is how mainstream it's gone. Talk about Mikhail Goldman, a Belgian immunologist, one of Europe's biggest champions of medical research, big supporter of the vaccine. And basically, he was having night sweats, a bunch of symptoms. He got a full-body CT scan. When the image came through, um, it revealed smattering of inky spots bunched near Mikhail's left armpit, left armpit running along his neck. So it was lymphoma. Given his own area of expertise, Mikkel understood that meant he'd soon be immunocompromised by chemotherapy. With another winter on the way and perhaps another wave of COVID, he went out, basically he went out and got his third jab. And by the way, it's important to, to note that, that these people, typically when you're, you know, you're a cancer patient, you stay away from this stuff. They, they were convinced to go get it. How many of those people did it hasten their death? Well, listen to this. So, um, within a few days after getting the shot, Mikkel was somehow feeling even worse than he already was from the cancer. His night sweats got much worse and more intense. Found himself out of character, very tired, most worrying. His lymph nodes were even more swollen. Basically got another CT scan. And he found on the pictures, they showed a brand new barrage of cancer lesions, so many spots that it looked like someone had set off fireworks inside his body. More than that, the lesions were now prominent on both sides of the body with new clusters blooming in Mikhail's right armpit in particular and along the right side of his neck. That's where he got the shot, by the way. When the hematologist saw the scan, she told him to report directly to the nearest hospital pharmacy He'd have to start right away on uh, um, steroids. Mikkel felt a gnawing worry that his COVID booster shot had somehow made him sicker. His brother was harboring a similar concern. The asymmetrical cluster of cancerous nodes around Mikkel's left armpit on the initial scan had already seemed a bit disturbing, especially given Mikkel's first two doses of the vaccine had been delivered on that side. Now, he'd had a booster shot in the other arm and the cancer's asymmetry was flipped. And by the way, I've seen there are numerous papers written exactly on this point with the lymphoma going up the arm, the neck. Um, I can't find it, but um, I know our listener Aaron from New York, if you're listening, I know you'll probably have that saved in your archives. Um, There's one in particular I have in mind. Uh, I mean, this is all, this is everywhere. And swollen lymph nodes is now, by the way, that's openly the mainstream media is saying this is a big symptom of the boosters is swollen lymph nodes. I had a family member who got that. How many of those people are going to develop cancers? Inflaming the lymph nodes. Gee, what do you think that does? My question to you is how, how bad does it have to get? How ubiquitous and emphatic does even the mainstream media reporting on the death shots causing death have to be in order to, for it to go mainstream among Republicans to even talk about it. As I noted in my column on the GOP's commitment to America, so after 10, 20 years of never being, being able to utter the word illegal immigration, finally now they talk about it. But again, not in a way that they're going to do anything about it. I was thinking perhaps in four to six years from now, it'll be okay to talk about the COVID shots when we are confronted with something, God forbid, I can't even imagine, that swamps the COVID shots in terms of magnitude of genocide, and we need to confront that, and they won't talk about that, but maybe they'll talk about COVID four to six years from now. We cannot let this issue go, and that leads me to our next guest. But first... Our interview today is sponsored by Birch Gold. Folks, look, (laughs) I mean, for a while it looked like the bull run in the markets was simply unstoppable. Now we have 22% decline in the S&P and the Dow, 30% decline in the NASDAQ in 2022. Folks, now is the time to invest in something of worth, timeless value, invest in gold with Birch Gold. 
Um, here's what they have to offer that I think is very important. You text Daniel to 989898, you get a free info kit on gold, how to convert your Roth or your well regular IRA or 401k into a tax sheltered account in gold and silver. Typically every April I would owe a couple thousand dollars rather than writing a check to the IRS, I'd dump more into an IRA, I'd put it into Vanguard, I'd put it into Fidelity. And Vanguard is literally, I mean, Together with BlackRock, they're the top of the chain of the transhumanism. So don't give it to them. Invest in gold. Birch Gold is really one of the longest-running companies. They have an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. So many, so many uh, you know, A-plus ratings from, from uh, satisfied customers. So again, do what I did. Text Daniel to 989898 to get free info kit on investing in gold. No obligation. But folks, the time for investing in, this, in the casino... Not only are you helping those who hate us, but it's not even profitable anymore. Invest in something that will increasingly have much more value, a hedge against the worthless fiat and digital cash that they plan on foisting upon us. Again, text Daniel to 989898. So at its core, the reason Steve Dace and I wrote our book, The Rise of the Fourth Reich, by the way, trialsandexecution.com is where you can download the first chapter right away and pre-order the book whenever the stupid supply chains get back in shape and we can get the book out. Um, we wrote it for one simple reason. Because we we went through literally a medical holocaust and most people don't even know it happened. Most politicians want to run away from this as if it never happened. But even if there is not a single case of severe COVID ever again, and even if our friends at DOD and HHS don't plan on engaging in more gain-of-function research, which they certainly will, and create more of these things. What, what went on in the hospitals is reverberating to this very day on many other treatments. And I, I want to kind of give you guys an intro to this before we bring on our special guest. Um, I, I mentioned, to, mentioned this at the time. I have an aunt who is not that old, only 68. It's one of my younger aunts. And she has colorectal cancer, and it came back pretty bad. I can't prove it was because of the three shots, but the timing is very suspicious from the pathologist that I speak to. But be it as it may, she got a very aggressive diagnosis. Um, she was and she she was in the hospital. Now, when I say aggressive diagnosis, I mean it's it's not good. It's not stage five. It's stage four. So you got a very tough battle, but it's not like it's over with. And especially, we're not talking about someone who's 100 years old. 68, otherwise healthy. Okay, it's not good. It's spread outside of the colon. Couple places. Not, not a good scan. Okay, now we need a plan. At the time, they literally were going to put a DNR on her. And my cousin, who's her son, was like, what the heck? And they almost kicked him out of the hospital. They were If we would have acceded to it, they would have killed her in the hospital. And again, she wasn't dying. And the funny thing is, here I am seven months later, and you know, thank God we got her a treatment plan. Again, it's still a big, big battle. But seven months later, she had seven months of life with her grandkids, and there's certainly, at a minimum, a lot more on the table. They were going to literally DNR her. This is a growing trend. COVID created this complete uninhibition where they could just do everything they want. And let me just throw out a smattering of things. The remdesivir, unilateral DNR orders, sedatives and contraindications, denial of basic indicated treatment, wouldn't do nebulizers, okay, wouldn't do the right steroids with the right dosage. We've talked a lot about, now, okay, this isn't so much for the hospitalization stage, but this was known... In 2020, nasal oral irrigation with betadine, 90% reduction in hospitalizations before we even get to any um, any of the fancy medicines, right? Any of the fancy you know pathology that some of the patriot doctors use to come up with protocols. No, just simply getting down that viral load, people were in the dark, except for those of you who listen to this show. The premature ventilation, you know, you had people with their blood oxygen levels still sometimes in the 90s, and, you know, they were kind of stable on non-invasive oxygen. They were still pushing it on them. You had the starvation, where food, nutrition is so much a part of the healing, 
and they would just starve them. They wouldn't visit them. They wouldn't allow other people to visit, and then the charge nurses wouldn't bring in um, staff to come and just help get the guy moving. Basic respiratory therapy. And then, of course, the abuse of those based on their perception of vac status, because sometimes people did get vaccinated, but they suspected you didn't. They're like, you deserve to die. That's just a smattering of the Nuremberg violations of what has become of our medical profession, what has become of our hospitals. And we used to always pride ourselves on saying, oh, well, that's in Europe where they have government-run healthcare. And I've been saying this you know, even before Obamacare, but certainly after Obamacare, we don't have private. It is all manipulated with Medicare, Medicaid, the insurance cartel. Um, we don't have free market healthcare in this country. Um, you know, some states you have some options for direct primary care, but not really for specialists and hospitalizations. Forget it. That is, it is completely broken. So this is the biggest pro-life issue of our time. Anyone who says, oh, I'm pro-life and they only refer to abortion and they don't address this issue, they're not pro-life. This is aborting live adults. This is, this is something we can't move on from. Everyone's going to need the hospital at some point. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Sitting at the nexus of this, and not just a human face to what went on, but a forward-looking plan as to what to do is Gail Seiler. She's the Texas chair of the COVID Humanity Betrayal Memory Project. Okay, look it up. It's a project of the former Feds group. It's a law firm headed by Brad Geyer, terrific guy, who's been helping people who have gone through um, this genocide, whether it's the remdesivir stuff, the maltreatment, the malpractice. And Gail was admitted to Medical City Plano Hospital. This is Plano, Texas, Collin County. So this is not, you know, just a blue area. Uh, she was admitted December 3rd, 2021. If you remember... That's when the viral immune escape created by the leaky vaccines, the Merrick's disease syndrome that we talked about so much with the leaky chicken vaccine that, that I believe played out, that Delta was worse and worse and worse and worse until it finally broke, you know, really an act of God, whoever created Omicron to supplant that. But Delta was getting bad, really bad. And it was roping in younger and younger and younger people. So many people died early in their 50s and 60s and sometimes even earlier of something that was really just pneumonia and it actually shouldn't have even led to the pneumonia-like symptoms had they gotten um, all the treatment that you know pretty much everyone in the audience that followed my advice and the doctors we've had on never landed in the hospital. But even those who did, the notion that a healthy 53-year-old would have to die is ridiculous. You give the right steroids, the nebulizer, right nutrition, even before we get to the anti-inflammatories like ivermectin, and almost everyone should have survived, especially especially at that age. But Gail lived through this nightmare. Every single thing we've ever talked about that went on the hospitals occurred with her, except for one, that her husband refused to let them kill her. And this is one of the few examples that has not, not just a happy outcome, but now someone who is so passionate about helping others, raising awareness, and particularly working in the Texas legislature and hopefully other legislatures for a patient bill of rights to fix this. With us today is Gail in the flesh. We thank God for your health, Gail, that you're here with us today. Thanks so much for joining us today at Blaze Media. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Well, now you heard my big filibuster there. <laughs> now people want to hear from you. Um, all right. So, you know, you came in December 3rd, 2021. Things were very bad there. Um, did you Were you able to get, did you have a frontline doctor that was giving you the right anti-inflammatories from day one, or did this kind of creep up on you quickly? Right. So um, as soon as I tested positive, I tested positive on the second, and we did reach out and we did get a frontline doctor to to prescribe the ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and budesonide. However, um, there was a delay in getting that medication because, as you know, so many people were were sick at that time, and um, so they were very overwhelmed. And um, 
I also went to a clinic to get the antibodies, but it was this was after the Biden administration had, had rationed the supply of them. And so they they were not giving them to just anybody. And I did not qualify for those. Um, I wasn't I wasn't vaccinated and my oxygen was I mean, it was in the 90s at that point. It wasn't like it was even low, but that was low enough for them to say that they wouldn't give it to me. So you were denied treatment. We had, at that point, just keep in mind, I mean, we had 17, no, we had more like 19 months worth of research. Mm -hmm. Everyone should have been advised to have this stuff right in their house, but instead the pharmacies were playing games, so it became a black market. There was such a shortage. We lived through that nightmare, all of us, and you couldn't get it, and your blood oxygen levels started dropping um, and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, I guess you didn't know about the nasal spray back then. Um, nope. you know, so that, that also was criminal because now we know there was a study from 2020 that showed an 85 to 90% reduction in hospitalization without taking a single therapeutic, just from you test positive, boom, start shooting yourself right. up with that betadine a couple times a day, criminal, criminal. So you wind up present at the ER in Plano now. People in the audience might think, well, okay, well, that's kind of, you know, not one of these uh, crazy areas like New York, San Francisco. <laughs> it should have been done right, yeah. right? Right. And so, and we we actually um, were aware of, we were aware of the remdesivir issues and some of the hospital, some of the hospital bad protocols only because we went to a, a COVID symposium a few months before in September where Dr. Artis and Dr. Bartlett and Dr. McCullough spoke. And that before that, I didn't even know about that rem, what remdesivir was. So um, when we, when my oxygen dropped, my, my husband's a former nurse. So he was monitoring pretty close. My oxygen did, it dropped to 77 as we waited for the wow. medications. Yeah. And so he said, we need a plan. We need to go to a hospital. What, what should we do? What, which one do you want to go to? And at the time, um, Colonel Allen West was running for governor, right? He was running in the primaries and there had been a, just had been a story about him going to Plano, uh, medical city Plano and getting the frontline doctor protocol, the ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and budesonide. And so, um, we said, okay, we'll we'll take our chances and we'll go there. And so my husband printed out the frontline doctor protocol. He made several copies to put one in my bag. Um, and he, when they finally brought me back into the ER, he gave he handed them that protocol, and they said, oh yes, we do this protocol too, and we will, we can do this. And so he felt comfortable. When they told him that he had to mm. go, we, he felt comfortable. I felt comfortable with him leaving because they had promised to give me this protocol. And, which is very unusual because most, you know, hostels left you out the door. All right. So, you know, I do know one other person that actually had an experience like that. It was more of a rural hospital, mm-hmm. which tended to be better. The worst you could land up in is uh, uh, one of the Ivy League type of university yeah. hospitals. Um, so you thought it was good, but uh, what happened thereafter? So then after um, many hours in the ER, in total I was in the ER, ER 26 hours, but after many hours, they weren't giving me the protocol. They weren't giving me really much treatment, um, even for the symptoms. But eventually they came and they did did an, an, an assessment, a verbal assessment, um, and they asked me, you know, all of my, you know, how old are you? You know, all the different questions. And they asked me if I was vaccinated or unvaccinated. And I, mm. I try to be very polite. I don't say, you know, hey, not, you know, I said I have a religious exemption. I'm not, you know, I work from home. I'm not. Um, so I don't have it. I don't have the shot. Didn't mm-hmm. have a shot. Don't want the shot. And at that point everything changed. They, the whole mood shifted the whole, I completely lost, um, control really of managing my own decisions, my healthcare decisions there. And I was thinking, 
okay, when I get up to the ICU, they said they couldn't open an ICU unit until they had five patients waiting or whatever because financially they couldn't do it. And so about 26 hours later, there was a group of us that went up to the ICU. And I thought, okay, when I when I talk to the doctor up in the ICU, I'm going to, we're going to give them, we're going to tell them, you know, that they promised to give me this, you know, remdesivir is not going to happen. And, um, so I, I went up on, into the ICU on, on the fourth and finally, and, um, Dr. Quatch, uh, was the hospitalist. I didn't even know what a hospitalist was at that point, but he came up, or he, he came in and he didn't do an assessment. Um, just, you know, I was there from the third to the 15th when my husband got me out and no one ever touched me, never listened to my lungs. They just wow. they did this examination from afar because it's COVID, which is <laughs> just the craziest thing. Didn't but, make sense. They're all vaccinated and it I works, know. right? It works. So, right. you it, know, well, what's, what's the arm? But so again, you're not a hundred years old, right. 53, 53, no underlying conditions, um, literally just a couple days in. And, and by the way, to me, that just demonstrates again, that Gert Vandenbosch, when he warned at the beginning of 2021, that if you vaccinate with suboptimal antibodies, it will create a monster. And that Delta was, yeah. I mean, it looks like you really, I mean, within a, just a couple days, it's astounding, uh, you know, started setting in the seventies, uh, was a candidate for the ICU already. Um, and okay, typically you have a, an adult that's, you know, middle age come in for, uh, some pneumonia like symptoms. Mm-hmm. All right, here's what we're going to do. And it was like, December 4th, you're going to die. Yes. December 4th, you know, he, he came in, Dr. Quatch came in and he asked me some questions and I said, um, he asked me about the vaccination status and I said, um, I'm not vaccinated. I went through the whole spiel. I didn't say, you know, no, I'm not taking that death dart. I said, no, I you know, have a religious exemption, yada, yada. He, he literally patted me on the hand. And, and keep in mind, he, he never examined me. He patted me on the hand and he said, I'm mm. so sorry, Mr. Seiler, but you're going to die. And I remembered Dr. Bartlett saying, you can fire your doctor. And so I said, I said, you're fired. I need a doctor that knows what he's doing that knows how to treat COVID, you know, like one of the frontline doctors, I, I, I need a doctor that can do that. And I, and I immediately called my husband because I started thinking, you know, maybe he could talk sense into the medical staff. And I called my husband and um, he, I said, the doctor keeps saying I'm going to die. And he, he was like, that doesn't make any sense your voice is strong. And he, and Dr. Quatch said the only options available were remdesivir and a vent. And even then I probably wouldn't make it because my lungs are shot and all this, my lung, he said my lungs were shot. They weren't. And, um, I, and I, again, I fired him, but then I said, since you gave me a terminal diagnosis, uh, President Trump had signed the Right to Try Act, mm. and I want the right to try ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, and budesonide, and I also want my priests to be allowed to come in and give me my final sacraments. I wasn't really afraid of dying of COVID, but I really felt like they were going to lead to my demise if I didn't get yep. the right treatment. And um, and then um, he said no. He said no. Uh, my daughter had come up that day and brought another copy of the Frontline Doctor Protocol uh, because they apparently said they didn't know what it, what it was anyways, which they did. Um, they still refused to do it. She asked for um, vitamins, just basically vitamins, high dose of C. And they told her, we are saving our vitamin C for the most critical of patients because there's a national shortage. She said, you told my mother mm. she was going to die. That's pretty critical. So, um, <laughs> but they, they gave me a low dose of, of vitamin C. But, um, so my family immediately started, um, you know, advocating for me, my daughter, 
my daughter literally, you know, I had been a GOP precinct chair for years. So my daughter literally reached out to every politician I ever helped get elected, you know, to try to get some, <laughs> to get some kind of action going. Um, You've got one of the greatest champions in the country. I want to call him out by name. Senator Bob Hall from from Texas is almost unparalleled, um, you know, in the country in terms of what he's done in this issue. Yeah. So so this is just a couple days in there. A couple a couple things I want to just, you know, paint a picture for people. So you're. Your uh, daughter and your husband are not able to come in the room. Is that right. correct? Right. I'm completely is- I was completely isolated. Um, they would not let them in. In fact, the doctor um, had specifically had security on the lookout for my husband because he had tried to come a couple times. Mm. Um, you know, my my daughter was able to get some pictures of my you know grandchildren to me and. Um, because she knew if anything gives you a person the will to live, it's, you know, looking at yep. the faces of their grandbabies. Absolutely. And so... Um, How are you feeling during that time physically and emotionally? D- describe, I want you to describe that scene that that several million people have gone through, and, and most people did not come out of that. I'm lying down. I'm assuming you had BiPAP at that point. Yeah. Yep. Um, which is the more, you know, encompassing mess, not just the nasal cannula. Um, what, how are you feeling physically and emotionally at that time? So I, I actually had both the, they had the nasal cannula and the BiPAP on me. Mm. And, um, I was to, so initially I, I was, fr- I was frightened. I, it was frightening because I, I could tell that the things that they were doing were, um, making me worse. I had, I was very, you know, like I had a hard time sleeping because I needed to look at everything that they gave me. You know, mm. I, I didn't. Did they give you sedatives? Uh, they would come in and offer them. And I said, no, I, you know, I have zero pain. I remember Dr. Artis's speech of don't take, yes, you know, don't take the, uh, any type of. The opioids and yeah. the sedatives, they're contraindicated. They slow your breathing. It's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. So you avoided that. And so, so you were with the BiPAP, you were setting in the nineties. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. 95. Okay. 96. 95. Right. Again. And, and that should be okay. That That's fine. Yeah. Would be even better if they're affirmatively giving you anti-inflammatories, the right steroid, the right dose, yeah. ivermectin, yada, yada, the nebulized treatments. But even without that, as long as you're eating properly, you, even if you don't have anything good put in your body, um, you should be able to survive that, but yet they're saying you need to be on a ventilator right then. Yes, they were pushing the vent, um, and they, I did. They also, you know, there was the denial of any water. They wouldn't give me water. Um, nutrition. Isn't there a nurse button? Pardon. Like a, like a nurse call button. Yes. So I was not allowed to have water, and I was not allowed to have any nutrition. And so, um, I didn't have, they didn't give me water for seven days, but yeah, but a few days in, they would bring me water with Miralax in it. And I said, I can't drink that because I don't have any nutrition. Like I don't have, that's going to Miralax. Yeah. That's, I said, that's going (laughs) to dehydrate the hell out of me. And I'm going to, I'm, it's going to make me decline. And, and I, and I even asked them, how come I can drink water? with Miralax in it, but I can't drink water with just water in it. And they, (laughs) (laughs) the the only thing I could think of is that they were used to giving people opioids for no reason. And then that, you know, that constipates you and then whatever, but, but that's, that's insane. So, so they, they, they literally, so did you try to call your husband say, I need food, I need to eat? Yeah. I called him and my daughter and I said, you know, I, they, they were fighting for the nutrition and they were fighting, well, and they were fighting for the, the water, and they told my husband, like every day, every day I would call my husband when the doctors would come in and tell me I wasn't, you know, getting better. I was getting worse. And um, I would call him because early on I had to say, and I had to make it very known with my husband on the phone. I said, no decisions are going to happen without my husband making them because mm. I didn't want them to say, oh, she agreed 
to the remdesivir. She yes. agreed agreed to the vent, and then because they wouldn't know what I said, so I had to make it very clear. Um, I even texted my daughter. My daughter asked me to text her my wishes so that she had them in writing. And I texted her, no, no remdesivir, no vent, no, um, you know, uh, my husband makes the decision, the decisions and, and I am, um, a full code. I am not a DNR. I had to make it that clear every day. And so my husband, um, you know, my, I would call my husband every time the doctor came in. And he was pushing at this time, At the, by this time, my daughter had made contact with Dr. Richard Bartlett and he was helping my family. And he, he was saying, you know, just push for the, push for the budesonide. They're never going to give you ivermectin, push for the budesonide. Yep. And my husband was pushing to that. And, and, you know, he would ask, he got a pulmonologist on that. I always got new doctors, but Dr. Quatch never was replaced, even though I fired him every day. And, um, my husband would say, you know, what's the dangers of remdesivir? And they would say, well, well, yeah, we have to check the kidney functions and the liver functions. And he would say, what's, what's the, what's the downside of ivermectin? It's, and they would say, it's not going to work. What's the downside of budesonide? It's not going to work. He said, but will it hurt mm-hmm. her? And they said, no, it won't hurt her. And he would say, I don't care what your opinion is, whether it'll work or not. It's not yep. going to hurt her. She should get it. And eventually they agreed. Well, early on, Dr. Quatch said to us, if you want your priest in, I'll let your priest in, but you have to agree to remdesivir. And wait, wait, wait. you have to agree to remdesivir to get the priest in for to allow your priest in. And they say you're going to die. Yeah. Um, but somehow you're bartering almost as if that's like a political chip. It's, yeah. it's a therapeutic. And and for our new, our newer listeners that weren't with us throughout the original saga, just so you know, remdesivir, even according to their way of thinking, but you know, putting aside that it's poison and it's toxic, mm-hmm. it causes liver toxicity and and renal failure, and and actually also does attack the pancreas. I have that on good word as well at a minimum three organs, but. At best, it's an antiviral. It's not an anti-inflammatory whatsoever. So it right. quite literally has no qualities that can work at a stage of pulmonary inflammation. It's mentally ill. There's no person who could look you in the eye, even if they think. I mean, th- you know, the question is: before the inflammation, if you took it right away, you know, and it has a tremendous risk, could it potentially also have a benefit? Maybe, maybe not. But at right. that stage, it's literally all risk, no return. Like. You have to get it in order to see your priest. So what do you say? Exactly. So, well, so I felt like I was bartering. You know, I care more about my soul than I do my body. I, we said mm. yes with the intention of once he gets in, we deny it. Um, my priest was supposed to come that night, but there was a dire emergency that he had to go to, and he came in the morning. So they got their 30 pieces of silver from the, you know, from the CARES Act because they did get one round of remdesivir in me. So, um, and then as soon as my priest came in the morning and gave me my sacraments, um, we said, we don't want remdesivir anymore. And they were a little bit, they were, they, they actually were pretty ticked off. He actually wrote in my doctor notes that, you know, we agreed, he let the priest in, and then we changed our minds, and we had lied. <laughs> and I was like, well, you lied about, you know, if we wouldn't have, it, I wouldn't it, have it, even stayed if you had told me. It, it's almost like you're <laughs> doing something for them. It's, it's, it's just bizarre. <laughs> when have you ever heard of that, like, like, it's a deal, you have a dying patient, as certainly according to them, and it's like, you don't take our favorite therapeutic, that's like... Man, yeah. I mean that—that's fighting words. It's just—it's just so bizarre. It is. Um, it, it, that was that was absolutely bizarre, and the treatment didn't get better after I did that. Right, so um, it only got worse. And so um, I, but I really felt when after my priest had left, I really felt like I was going to see a miracle, and so I. I hung on as long as I possibly could. I mean, we eventually they did um, the pulmonologist and here, here's a problem in America. So the pulmonologist did agree to budesonide eventually. And he wrote the order 
for one milligram every four hours, just like Dr. Bartlett had suggested. But the pharmacy, the pharmacist and the hospital administration overrode that and blocked it. Yes. And which is incredible to me that they have that much power. But um, they don't. They don't. Yeah, because because if they would override in the other direction, then they wouldn't give them that power. It's you know, it's obviously uh, it's the spirit of the of the age. But so they overrode it. So you didn't even get that. Now, could you talk about this? DNR that showed up on your record. Yeah, so every day um every day my um my daughter she was monitoring my chart and this the budesonide kind of plays into that. So eventually they did agree to give me it every 12 hours. But after two doses, Dr. Klopp said I've never seen this before. You're starting to improve. I thought he was <laughs> in the light. I said imagine what would happen if you gave it to me every 4 hours like Dr. Bartlett wanted, and um, he said no, and then they started skipping doses and replacing it with albuterol, which isn't the same thing. It's not an inhaled It's not steroid. a steroid. It's not yeah. a steroid-based, so it's not, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. not going to cut it. But we kind of knew they were trying to kill me. And then, um, so the DNR, my daughter, that's, so my daughter called me and said, hey, they're skipping the, they're they're not really giving you budesonide all the time. They're giving you albuterol. And by the way, you're, you're listed as a do not resuscitate. And, you know, the day before that, my husband was on, I called my husband and Dr. Quatch had said, what do you want us to do when she codes? And I said, what do you mean when I code? I, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm going to code. Um, is there something I don't know? Am I having heart issues? No, just, you know, let's say, okay, let's say if you do, my husband said, she's a full code. I want you to resuscitate her. And he said, then you have, then we have to ventilate her. And he said, no, you don't, you can bag her for a while and then you can call me and I'll tell you what to do next and what we want done at every stage. Cause we didn't want to give them this blanket, permission to ventilate me because yep. there's money tied to it and it would have happened somehow or another. Right. And so, um, and so my daughter would call me and she said, you know, they, there's, they're skipping the budesonide and they have you listed as a DNR. So I thought, well, they must be mistaken. And I would, and I told the doctor, I said, I'm, I would even tell the nurses, I'm not a DNR. I'm not a do not resuscitate. I'm, I'm a full code. You have me listed as a DNR. And the doctor literally said to me, yes, you are. Yes, I was. (laughs) And that's, so you ask how I've, how I was feeling. And like, at that point, I'm terrified because to hear, to, for, for me to tell a doctor, a nurse, um, we even had our lawyer, Paul Davis, attorney Paul Davis here, um, they call him the like the Patriot attorney. Um, he even talked to the administration and said I wasn't a DNR and they didn't change it. So every day they had me listed as a as a do not resuscitate and we're telling them I'm not and they're just making me that way anyways. And um so it was getting worse and worse and more dangerous. And they were telling my family, they were kind of, okay, they would say, we'll get an, a patient advocate up there, which never happened. They, they never sent the patient advocate. And then they were saying, let's set up a, an ethics council, an ethics committee meeting. And they were just drawing out the time. And so it's, things would happen and things would get delayed and treatments would get delayed. Um, the only way I even got water and was they brought in a cup, a tall glass of water with Miralax in it. And I knocked it over and a, um, patient care tech came in and said, Oh, Miss Gale, you knocked over your, your water. Do you want me to get you some fresh water? And I said, yes. And could I have some ice chips too? And she said, sure. And she brought in, she was new. She brought in some ice chips and she brought in some water and I was, you know, taking, taking off my bike so I could drink it and take, you know, 
um, take some ice chips. And a nurse came in and said, what are you doing? You're nothing by mouth. And I said, I don't know who told you that because clearly I can drink this water. <laughs> she said, oh, let me go get you some insure. She was going to go get an insure. And the doctor stopped her and said I couldn't have it. But from that point, they let me have the water at least. Oh, my gosh. I, yeah. I can't. I can't imagine that. So so let's accelerate this a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, go towards the end. So obviously your husband is an Army nurse, former Army nurse, knows he's got to get you out of there. What does he try to do to get you out? Um, And, you know, this was the jailbreak scenario that I tried to help people with to get them out. Um, But often the problem was it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, and by then they weren't even able to get them out physically, even if you had cooperation. So describe your evacuation or or anything else we're missing about the malvolence of the treatment in the hospital. Yeah, and so um, so – Bob Hall, Senator Bob Hall had been helping us by, you know, uh, supplying us with the House Bill, you know, House Bill 2211 and Senate Bill 572, where it, you know, basically it's it's a type of no patient left alone act. However, as you know, when legislation gets signed or written, there's always loopholes in it that shouldn't be there. And as is the case with these two bills, it allows the doctor to write an order over basically overriding the law and that's what happened to me and every five days they would redo it so my husband armed with those two bills came down on the 14th of december and tried to get in to see me and they would with those bills and they wouldn't let him and he called 911 and he had the police come down and so the police came down and wouldn't they would not um they wouldn't enforce what was in the bills. So my my husband asked them to do a welfare check. And they mm. said, they said, well, she's fine. She's in a hospital. What could go wrong, right? What could be wrong? And he said, no, I need you to do a, a welfare check. Um, and so the officer put on some PPE and he stood at the door. But he allowed the charge nurse, William, to be in the room. And... Um, he asked me, he said, your husband wants me to do a welfare check. What do you want me to tell him? And I had to go for it. I said, this is, I, I listed out all of the abuse and neglect and the things that were happening to me in this hospital. And, um, and I told the officer, I said, if I stay here, they're going to murder me. And I used those words. I said, they're going to murder me. And, um, William stood there shaking his head, and the officer said, oh, my God, we don't have a protocol for this. And he left. <laughs> he left me there. I'm sure he didn't. Yeah. And so I um, didn't know if I was going to survive the night, and I didn't know what he told my husband. But my my daughter and my husband knew my time was short. And so my husband called me on the 15th at 7 a.m. And he said, are you on speaker? No. Okay. And so he, he told me that he was contracting with a company called Synergy Health to, to be the advisors. And he was going to come and take me out on home hospice if I wanted to go. And he said, mm. he said, only I'm going to save you. But I'm going to take you out on home hospice because if you go AMA, there's a lot of things that can go wrong, right? You, you can't sue the hospital later. You can't, the insurance isn't going to pay your bill. The, you know, there's all sorts of things that they can scare you with. And so he said, I'm going to take you a, I'm going to take you out of home hospice. And I said, okay. I said, yeah, I definitely want to go. I'm going to be murdered here. If I don't, you know, I'm, it's, it's take the chance and die at home or take the, or definitely die here in this, at the hands of these people. And so, um, so every day, and, um, you know, we're people of faith, me and my husband and my daughter. So sure. every day, my husband, the, the ICU doors were locked. You, you, can't get, you can't get in unless they buzz you in. And um, they had this old guy, security guy at the security desk downstairs that, you know, was on the lookout for my husband. That morning when my husband came... Um, 
and my daughter was like 10 minutes behind him. There was this young kid sitting at the security guard uh, station who didn't know my husband. And my husband came in with a cease and desist from our lawyer with the House bill and the Senate bill attached to it. And he dropped it on the desk and he said, I'm going to get my wife. And the guy was like, okay, he didn't know. Right. And so and the, <laughs> the elevator doors were open. My husband got on the elevator for whatever reason, the ICU doors were unlocked. I think it was the hand of God on that. He was up the elevators through the ICU doors and in my room so fast they couldn't stop him. And the old security guard saw him as he was passing and getting on the elevator and came running up to chase him. And they chased him into my room, but he was already in. And he, and they said, you need to get out. You need to get out of here now. You're a danger. And um, he said, you're not going to kill my wife. I'm not going anywhere. She's coming home with me today. And, um, and you're not going to use her as a guinea pig. And I looked at him and I was, I said, I'm going home with him today. I was like, I was so, I mean, I was still a little, you know, I hadn't had food in 14 days and, you know, oh my so I was like kind of loopy, but I said, I'm going home with him today. And my husband called 911, hoping the police would help us. The hospital called 911. I can tell you they were not there to help us. My daughter was in the hallway with them. She recorded a lot of it and took photos. Um, but they, their goal at that hospital was initially to get him out of that room by any means. I, I think he was not arrested because Senator Bob Hall had called um, in and co- to calm the situation down a little bit. And um, even Colonel Allen West called. My daughter got a hold of him, and he called mm. and told them that they were um, discriminating against me because they had given him the protocol, and that they didn't care. I mean, they just didn't care. But, um, but it was about a five and a half hour standoff before they let me leave. And they do this thing where they they will try to split the family. And luckily, my husband, me, and my daughter were all on the same page, yes. and we were not afraid. I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah, if they can find one weak link in the chain, they get rid of everybody but that weak link. And and they come in, and they try to gaslight the patient, and this is what the, the gaslighting looks like, is they try to scare you. They try to, you know, tell you, like, they they came in, and they said, they said, Mrs. Seiler, you're going to die tonight. By, by tonight, if you go home, you're, he can't manage your oxygen. It's too high because they get you addicted and they get you on that high oxygen. So you're just withered away. And they said, you'll die tonight if you, if he takes you out of here. And um, I looked at my husband and I said, do you have everything you need to take care of me at home? And he said, yes, I do. And um, I told that woman doctor, I said, um, I trust my husband with my life. And if I die at home, I would rather die at his hands with him trying to save me than be murdered at your hands. And I'm going home. Eventually I'm going home today because they're not leaving and I want to go home. And I told the police many times that they were going to have to decide if I was a patient or a prisoner. And, and eventually they, um, took out the IVs, they took out the catheter, and the floor nurse stood at the door while my husband got me dressed and got me into a wheelchair and tapped his watch, tapped his watch that time was wasting. And my husband had brought a little bottle of the oxygen um, just to get me home. And, uh, you know, I thought I was just going to hop into that wheelchair, but... I had not, you know, I'd been asking for physical therapy and be, the ability to get up and I had been denied it. And so when mm. my husband went to get me in the chair, I, I couldn't bear weight on my legs. It took me a little while to walk wow. again, but he got me in that chair and they said, um, the floor nurse, William told him, we're going to take you out a shortcut. And 
you know, my room was right above the ER. As fast as my husband got up and into my room, we could have been down and out, but it would have gone past people. And so they took us this windy, long way in through the back hallways and down the elevator where they take corpses down to the morgue in the hospital mm. and out the doors. They had my daughter park out the doors where the bodies are picked up from the um, by the uh, funeral homes. And they, they said to my husband, as he was getting me in the car, they said, she'll be dead by tonight. She might be dead by the time you get home. And um, he said, you better hope that she does die because I can guarantee you I'm going to do everything I can to save her. And if she lives, she's never going to stop talking about it. And she's going to be all over you guys. And mm. even God's not going to be able to help you. And so... Um, and I, you know, he got me home. I obviously didn't die. My lungs are not shot. I didn't need a lung transplant. I can do, I can swim a hundred, you know, a hundred laps in my pool. I can do 45 minutes on an elliptical. That's not a woman with shot lungs. So, so here we are. What? I mean, this is about 10 months later, nine months later. Yeah. What sort of effects do you feel? Um, none. The only, the on, only long lasting effect I had was, um, that I had lost a lot of my hair due to the neglect and abuse. And, um, sure, and sure. that took a long time. It's still kind of growing back, but, um, but I think could... systemically, systemically you made a full recovery. And, and the fact that you were able to get out of the hospital demonstrates the absurdity that they wanted to just DNR you. And again, 53 years old, um, we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to frame for people that your, your story is extraordinary, but it's not. Meaning it's not extraordinary in the sense that it's unique. Um, this played out hundreds of thousands of times, but because you had an amazing husband, a daughter, your own intuition, your own, your own uh, knowledge, your own connections, your own desire to survive – um, here you are today. Real briefly, talk about what you're doing yeah. with this project from the federal funds uh, group, yeah, so, um, fe former former feds uh, group, and some of the big legislative items you think everyone here needs to be push be pushing with their state legislatures. Yeah. So so briefly, you know, we um, I became the uh, and I'm, it's volunteer. I'm volunteer state Texas state chair for. Uh, former feds group and their COVID humanity betrayal memory project. And we are hearing from hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands of not just mostly not survivor stories, but some survivor stories and um, throughout the United States. And we're documenting them in this project at, called the humanity betrayal memory project. So that and and what we do is we we do an interview, we document the stories, we we will look through. We have a team of nurses and doctors that will look through the medical records. We are finding attorneys to take these cases, um, and and hold hold these hospitals and these doctors accountable. And so, if somebody does have a case, or they want to submit their story, or or even view the stories that are out there in their state or all the states. They would go to chbmp.org, um, or they can go to formerfedsgroup.org uh, to to do that as well. We also have a whistleblower program and a legislative committee and a, and a research committee. And if they're interested in information on that, or if whistleblowers want to reach out, they can email FDA Death Protocol at formerfedsgroup.org. If, or if attorneys too, if attorneys are, are wanting to take some of these cases, we, we, the more attorneys that take it, you know, the better, but, um, you know, we, the goal is to not just to create a historical record that nobody can deny that this happened. Cause like you said, the, you know, everybody wants to be a little hush about it, but, um, we want to get these stories in front of legislators so that they can't yes. ignore it. You know, so that we have we to need make... hospital reform. Yeah. We need patient bills of rights. We need criminal and civil um, causes of action yep. for those that push things against the patient's will, the medical kidnapping, yep. um, the denial of food. 
I mean, all of this stuff needs to be in there. This needs to be addressed. Um, I I wish we had more time to delve into the specifics, but again, it's chbmp.org. Yeah, the COVID Humanity Betrayal Memory Project. Again, check out former Fed's group. Terrific, terrific organization. Um, You know, it's it's so... It's so nice having someone who who survived it, and I, I believe God has put you here on a mission for that because there are so many people. and And look, feel free to reach out to Gail. Um, I, I too many of you have these stories, and unfortunately, they didn't have as good of an ending. Um, but but again, I think we could shed some light on this. We have to record what humanity has missed. What yeah. what went on? It is it is shocking to me. I can't even get excited about anything else going on, and there's so much that is so terrible in this country, in our body politic, in our government. Um, you can't move on from this. It is no, it is uh, it's just shocking. Uh, final word, and we're going to sew up here. Yeah. So, I, like I, you know, I, I'm doing this because I can't whistle past what I see as the death camps. I, I see this as a hospital holocaust. I know what's happening on the inside, and I'm never going to stop talking about it. <laughs> so until until it is reformed and um, people take note, people are going to have to decide. Politicians are going to have to decide. Are they on the right side of history or the wrong side of history? Absolutely. And we're going to be on the right side of history here. Gail, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you all for tuning in today. I'll be out tomorrow. Till Wednesday, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.